0: This morning, we continue to be in the Gospel of Mark, uh, where we've been for quite a while. And I've chosen to title the message, Uncomplicated, Uncluttered, Unencumbered. My daughter said to me, "Yeah, shouldn't use the word encumbered said, Dad never used a big word, where small words will probably do. And I said, you underestimate the literacy level of Creekside Church. <laughs> they completely understand what encumbered means. Uh, most people, especially those, I'm thinking of the families, bringing their kids down here, for many people they would say that's actually the opposite of how they would describe their own life. That they might describe the life that they lead week to week as being quite complicated, very cluttered, and at times feeling quite encumbered, quite weighed down, that they would say, that's life. Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, and even beyond the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had the message of the cross, I think it's a reminder to us that in terms of our spiritual life, that what it means to be child of God, what it means to walk that path, is actually uncomplicated, uncluttered, and it should be unencumbered. And in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at, I will say, Jewish people whose heart was to serve God, to identify as his children, but for them, that life had become very complicated, I would say, cluttered and encumbered, that they would have felt weighed down. In the Gospel of Mark, in the first part of the, that book, uh, we read countless miracles It's almost like one miracle after another, and in fact, the Bible would say that these are only a small record of the miracles that Jesus performed. And as you get more to the middle of Mark, you get to hear a bit more of Mark teaching about this new kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of this world. And so you have conversations about, in this kingdom, you need to serve one another. In this kingdom, it is the least who will eventually be the greatest. So it would be the opposite of what most people would have thought of in terms of earthly kingdoms. And in the chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, we also increasingly have conversations that Jesus has with his disciples about what lies ahead for him. The cross, the resurrection. And I I think we have to grab hold of the fact that the cross is what makes our spiritual walk uncomplicated, uncluttered, and unencumbered. And the cost of that, I'll call it freedom, was the life of Jesus. In chapter 11, uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem to adoring crowds. People wave branches, they throw things down in front of him. And it says in the New American Standard Bible that as Jesus enters, he pops into the temple. And I get the sense that he pops in there and just sort of takes a look. And then he heads on because it's late and he heads to Bethany. And it says the very next day, Jesus returns to the temple. And this very place that you might say should be reserved for the highest and greatest honor for it is the temple of God. Jesus both literally and figuratively begins to clean house. And Chris is going to talk about just that event, the cleansing of the temple next week. And his actions anger those who oppose him. And they question his authority. In fact, they ask him, by what authority did you actually do that? Who gave you the right to do what you just did? I thought about that a bit this week, and one of the things that struck me, the fact that no one stopped him. And surely Jesus would have been outnumbered in that temple setting. The fact that no one stopped him speaks to the implicit authority that they recognized in Jesus. But they still ask the question, by what authority did you do that? And so I think, you know, when we think about who are these people, who are those who oppose Jesus... Because when you read the Gospels, it sounds like the ordinary people flocked to him. The ordinary people were drawn to Jesus. And so throughout the New Testament, you hear about three groups, I would say. You hear about the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, I think we could simply call them the ruling council within Jewish society... Under Rome, so that to a certain extent the Jewish people had some level of self government. The Sanhedrin were the ones that kind of were the overseers of what that looked like. And so they had huge influence on virtually every aspect of Jewish life. You might say today they were both the Supreme Court and the Legislative Assembly. This ruling council called the Sanhedrin was made up of largely two groups. And we hear these in the Gospels too. One of them is called the Sadducees. They were the majority voice within this council. So most of the people in the council would have been Sadducees. They had the majority in the council, but they were not very well liked by the ordinary people because they were the elite. The Sadducees, in a way, had made their peace with Rome because under Rome, they actually also received a fair amount of wealth and prestige and power. The other group are the Pharisees, and we hear about them all the time. The Pharisees within this council were smaller in number But in terms of popular opinion, the people would have favored the Pharisees over the Sadducees. The Pharisees were generally the religious teachers. So if you were to send your little children to a school, it would be a Pharisee probably who would instruct your children in the ways of God. The Sanhedrin had a vested interest in the political system. The Pharisees had a vested interest in the laws, the festivals, the rituals that identified them as God's people. So both of them, you might say, had a vested interest in not changing things. It's interesting that these two groups, although they both had a religious aspect to them, perhaps the Pharisees more so than the Sadducees, had some very different theological beliefs. The Sadducees did not believe in the immortality of the soul. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the body. And the Sadducees did not believe in angels or demons. And I found that interesting. It's like all those things that we are asked to believe, that spiritual things that are invisible but probably more real than even the things we see. The Sadducees say, eh, don't think those exist. Sadducees stuck to the five first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and that's what they followed. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they did believe in the immortality of the soul. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees actually believed in angels and demons. In one of the pieces of information that I read, I don't know if it came from the book or if it came from someplace else, that one of the roles of this ruling council was to be on the lookout for the Messiah which would maybe make sense within the Jewish community who were always waiting for a Messiah. And it's true that when John the Baptist appeared and was teaching, my guess is perhaps some of the Sanhedrin would have checked out John and to ask the question, well, maybe he's the, maybe he's the Messiah. And Jesus appears, and so you might say, it's understandable how they would sort of Connect or, in fact, be in conflict. And it's interesting. They would have had Jesus on their radar. And as you read the gospel, you know that Jesus certainly had the Pharisees and the Sadducees on his. And so while these two groups held strong differences, they shared a certain suspicion And beyond suspicion, these groups shared a hatred for Jesus. And I think sometimes we can read the Gospels, we can read these accounts, and you think, well, I guess they really didn't like him. The answer is they hated him. And it's very often, in small little parts of verses, you you get the sense that their goal is strictly to get rid of him. And so you can see the Sadducees potentially saw him as a political threat to their way of life. The Pharisees saw him as a threat to the religious systems that were already in place. And both groups knew that Jesus was watching them. It's interesting, just before the three questions that I'm going to talk about, Jesus had told a story about an absentee vineyard owner who sends others to take care of the vineyard because he's not there. And the story goes that the vineyard workers say that, oh, okay, the owner's not here. And they either beat up or they actually kill the people that the vineyard owner has sent, including, if you know the story, including the vineyard owner's son. And when Jesus tells that story... The Sadducees, the Pharisees, know that he is pointing the finger at them. That he's talking about them as you might say the thugs in this story. But if you read the end of that story where they are so angry at Jesus, they said they were trying to find a way to get rid of him, but they were afraid of, do you know who? the people, because the people loved Jesus. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees poured, you might say, their collective energy and their collective wisdom into creating scenarios in which Jesus would either say or do something incriminating. If we simply take matters into our own hands, there's going to be an uproar from the people. So maybe we can get Jesus to do something that gives us the right to arrest him. Today we would simply call it, I think, entrapment. I'm going to ask you this question. Have you ever been asked a question? And immediately, as soon as a question is asked, you realize there is more to this question than just the question. Sometimes we call it, well, that's a loaded question. Or that question has kind of a hidden agenda behind it. So when somebody might say to me, well, Doug, what do you think of the BC election? I'd likely pause before I answered that. Doug, what do you think about immigration? Doug, what do you think about carbon tax stuff? I would say every one of those questions, there is more to the question than the question. That at a certain level, they're asking me in a way to show my cards. They want to know, well, can I put you in this camp, or do I put you in this camp? I think often it's wise to avoid those questions, and we do. We we sometimes say, "Well, I don't know, haven't thought about it. Or we'll say something, well, it was interesting. And there are times when you actually may take the bait, and you answer the question and very quickly realize, oh my goodness, I should not have done that. And occasionally, you may respond to that kind of a question with another question and I think we do this and I think it's wise so if somebody says to you so what do you think about the election a response might be well I don't know why do you ask asking that simple question why do you ask is really asking what is the intent of your question Three questions are asked of Jesus in Mark 12. One is about taxation, and one relates to marriage and heaven, marriage and the resurrection. Both of these are loaded questions. I would say they are born of deception and they are delivered with flattery. And if you read that section, they compliment Jesus on how great a teacher he is and how he shows no favor. But the questions are full of deception, and their method is full of flattery. These are not, I'm going to suggest, Questions or issues over which the Pharisees and Sadducees have been stewing. It's not like these are legitimate questions. If you read just prior to these questions, they have actually gathered together to figure out, what can we ask them that will trip them up? The real question behind these questions is one about control and authority. And currently, you can make a case that currently the Sadducees and Pharisees had that. They had control over people's lives. They had authority (laughs) in virtually every aspect of a life. And they saw in Jesus a potential threat. Mark 12, verse 13 to 17. This is from the New Living Translation. It said, Later the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. So here's their delivery. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and you don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. So now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, Why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. And they handed it to him and he asked, whose picture? And whose title are stamped on it? And Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And his reply completely amazed them. It is amazing how easily Jesus disarms the very best questions that the Pharisees and Sadducees could come up with. Caesar's image is on the coin, so give to him what belongs to him. As I thought about that story, I found myself asking the question, what does it mean to give to God? What is God's? And I don't think that in any way, shape, or form is actually a money question. He's not saying, well, give the tax to Caesar and then give everything else to God. I want you to consider this, that you and I are made in the image of God. That the image of God is actually stamped on our very identity. And so while Jesus might say, yes, go ahead, give some of your money to the earthly kingdoms, but give your life, give your allegiance to God because his image is actually stamped on who you are. Second question that's asked of Jesus, I find a bit odd. It's a fictitious scenario of a woman who has had seven husbands, all of whom have died. And there's lots of place for jokes in there, but the question is asked at the end, so in heaven, which one will be her husband? One of the things I thought, well, would that story have been any different if there were four husbands? Like, what's, is there something significant about the seven? I don't know if there is. What makes the question even stranger is that those asking it don't actually believe that the resurrection even exists. And again, Jesus takes this question, and he chooses, as he did with the one with Caesar, he takes the bait. He chooses to answer the question. Mark 12, 24 to 28. Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures. And I love the second half of that. And you don't know the power of God. For Jesus to make that statement to Pharisees and Sadducees to say to them, you don't know the scriptures, would have sounded absolutely preposterous. The Pharisees and Sadducees would have said, we know it. in fact we probably haven't memorized. And it's an interesting um, example of how you can know things and yet not get things. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. That does not say we will be angels in heaven, but it says that in this respect, in terms of being given in marriage or not given in marriage, we will actually be like the angels. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised. Haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses? In the story of the burning bush, that long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. That God is the God of the living not the dead, you have made a serious error. It made me think a little bit, a few chapters before that, about the transfiguration of Jesus, where Moses and Elijah appear. And they are in conversation with Jesus. It's another such amazing example of the truth, of the resurrection, of life after the grave. As I thought about this, Jesus, who would have known what lay ahead of him, it's like he's saying, yes, you know what, Sanhedrin, you will eventually deliver me up to be crucified. But that victory will be short-lived, for I will rise from the dead. And I will throw open the doors of my kingdom to every tribe and to every nation, to everyone who is willing to bow down and worship me in spirit and in truth, I will welcome as my children, and they will become my people, and the focus will no longer be on a physical structure on a mountain. They will meet wherever they choose to meet. No need to pass by money changers as they come in. No need to bow down before men in robes. No need to look over their shoulder at those so eager to judge them. Jesus says, I'm ushering in a new kingdom where the righteous will live by faith. And they will have freedom to come before God as his children and address him as Father." And into this new family, God will speak through his spirit. And God will give ordinary people gifts in his church with which to serve one another and with which to serve him. And these people will inherit eternity because God is a God of the living and not the dead. And I'm going to take everything that you have created and it's going to become uncomplicated. It's going to become uncluttered. It's it's going to become unencumbered. And then there's the third question. It's posed by a teacher, so it's likely posed by a Pharisee. And it says that this Pharisee has been listening. And that he has found himself impressed with Jesus' answers. This man would have been familiar with a whole host of laws. Far beyond just simply the Ten Commandments. There were countless, hundreds of other laws that had been passed which governed people's lives. And I don't know whether his question was from a sincere heart or whether he was trying to trap Jesus, but when I read it, I I get a sense that this Pharisee might have been asking a very sincere question. It's like saying, Jesus, given all these laws that we try to fulfill, what's the greatest? It's almost like the Pharisee is asking, what really matters? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's a question we need to ask. That's a worthwhile question. And the second what he says is, Similar to that, is of equal importance, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. In the life of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus Christ, everything flows out of those two. Do you love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength? Do you see him as your heavenly father? Two, do you love one another? Do you love your neighbor? Those are worthwhile questions asking in our walk with God. Everything else is either secondary or even irrelevant. It's interesting as you keep reading in some of Paul's letters where some of the Christians want to bring back rules and regulations. Well, should we eat this? Should we not eat this? Should we drink that? Paul says all those things don't matter. The existing sacrificial system, the one that Jesus probably observed when he popped into the temple and then the next day cleaned it out, had become at least corrupted by the potential of personal gain, that the temple had become a place where certain people could actually make good money. And the religious laws that govern people's lives had become, I think, often overwhelming, and that in a very real sense, they may have found themselves trapped in something spiritually unfulfilling. And it's why the ordinary people saw in Jesus not only a man who spoke with authority, but a man who seemed to spoke with a breath of fresh air about what matters spiritually. That into these empty rituals, the sacrifice of Jesus has been given once and given for all. It is meant to give us life. It is meant to free us. It's Jesus almost saying to these people who he's talking to, a new day is coming. A new freedom is coming. And that freedom comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to come before God our Father unencumbered. No sacrifices to bring. No stack of good works to perform. No empty rituals to simply come humbly and boldly into the presence of God. His image is actually stamped on our life. I actually love that picture. And I know there's an old hymn that talks about, Have Thine Own Image. So I encourage you this morning to give your life wholeheartedly to God. I encourage you to embrace him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And I encourage you to love one another. And live in the freedom for which we have been set free. That amidst all the parts of your life that you might even say at times, whoa, they're out of control. In terms of your walk with God. It should be uncomplicated. It should be uncluttered. It should be unencumbered. I'm going to invite the worship team. They're going to wrap up with a couple of songs. One might be a bit new. The first one is about coming to the altar. If it's new, you can either join in as you kind of catch on. Or you can just listen. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, For the freedom uh, for which we have been set free. That in your word, God, you would often say through Paul and others, why would you exchange the freedom that Jesus brought for you for anything else? And so, Father, I pray that we would rejoice in the victory of Jesus on our behalf. Father, help us truly to embrace you with all our heart as God the Father. And Father, help us even within the church and within our neighborhoods to love one another. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.